The last few weeks, we've been looking at some of the stories that Jesus told while he was here on earth. And they're memorable stories designed to communicate to us important spiritual truths. And we call these stories parables. They challenge us, encourage us, or give us perspective on seeing things the way that God sees them. And they tackle many of life's most important questions. Now, many of the stories that Jesus told are very easy to understand. They may not be easy to listen to because they often challenge us in significant ways, but it's not as if they're difficult to to understand. For example, we began this series with a story that Jesus calls the parable of the sower. It's a story that challenges us to be good listeners to the message that God has for us. It compares each of us to different kinds of soil, and it says that some kinds of soil are more receptive than others, so be that more receptive soil. In fact, at the end of the parable, Jesus goes on to say, listen to what the parable of the sower means, and then he uses every detail in the story, tells what it represents in order for us to understand. Or two weeks ago, in a story that Luke tells in his biography of Jesus, he began the parable by saying, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up. So just in case it isn't clear, he tells the meaning of the parable, then shares what Jesus had to say. So... We know from that one, the topic is prayer and we're not supposed to give up. Or last week, a story that Jesus told about forgiveness. At the end of this parable, he summarized it saying this, this is how your heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. So I guess Jesus wants us to forgive one another. But this story, this week's story is not quite the way those stories are. In fact, it's a story that on the surface is confusing In fact, some find this story deeply troubling. For one, the main character in the story is, quite frankly, a rascal. In a moment, you'll see the problem, because the hero in the story, if you can call him that, is a dishonest rogue who swindles his master out of a significant sum of money. So many wonder, does Jesus tell this story with this unsavory character in order for us to think we should follow his example? And viewed from one angle, what we've got is a story that depicts a character that If we endorse his behavior, we would be following the example of politicians and business leaders and others who have ended up doing things and getting thrown into jail. So at best, it's an odd story. At worst, it's troubling. Well, what I'd like to do is to read the story. It's in Luke chapter 16, and then we're going to talk a a little bit about it. Um, We're going to begin with verse 1 in Luke chapter 16, and if you'd like to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, you can on page 1593, page 1593 although the words will also be on the screen. So here's what it says. It says that Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe the master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The manager or the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. So maybe you see the problem here. 
It says at the end, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. So really, you want to say, what about this manager in the story, or this master, excuse me, in the story? The big boss who's so clueless that he tolerates behavior that would normally get someone thrown into jail or worse. And the confusion here is understandable. First, it's confusing about what's exactly going on. In addition, what little we know of the characters in the story, it makes it hard to be sympathetic to any of them. And then, unlike some of the other stories that we've looked at, Jesus doesn't give us many clues about what the point is he's trying to make. All of which means that uh, is that the suggestion of what Jesus is getting at are all over the map. I read one scholar this week who gave 16 different options for how to interpret the story. Now, I have to tell you that most of those just uh, melted away in light of some of the plain details in the story. But it still left me with a handful to sift through. Now, that said, with some level of certainty, I believe that the point that Jesus is trying to make is relatively clear. In fact, I think it's a significant message, one that's important for each one of us to hear. As with many of the stories that Jesus told, this one is intended to be a compare and contrast kind of story, or said differently, it's what Jesus sometimes says or calls a how much more story. So just as the servant in the story is trying to save his skin, we too should be motivated, he says, to use whatever we have to win friends and influence people. Now, the message is a little bit more complicated and nuanced than that, but I think you can begin to get the idea. We've already read the story, so you've got the outline, but let's go a little bit more into some of the details so you can get it firmly fixed in your mind, and then we'll try to explain what the point is. What we've got here is a wealthy man who has operations, but he's kind of semi-disengaged. He's letting other people manage his property, including this manager. But he's doing, this manager's doing, a horrible job. In fact, he's wasting the rich man's money. It's not just that he's incompetent or irresponsible. His behavior is criminal. So when the rich man hears about it, he calls him in and he fires him. But he does something before he fires him. He sort of gives him a two-week or sometime time frame to get the book straightened out, just to be able to hand over the business so he understands what's going on. Well, this guy, thought of unemployment terrifies him. After years of doing desk work, he's really soft, so he can't imagine digging ditches for a living. And plus, in all of that, he realized that he's been living the good life. Nice house, country club membership, vacations along the Mediterranean. He's certainly not going to go out on the street and beg. He's way too proud for that. So he hatches a plot, and it's a risky one, but it's a clever one. He figures while he still has these couple of weeks or so, he will go to several of his boss's clients and ask them, question, how much do you owe? And in the process, he reduces their debt. So he asks one, he says 900 barrels of oil, he says cut that debt in half. Or another one, 1,000 bushels of wheat, he says, well, cut it by 20%. And just so you know, these weren't trivial amounts. It wasn't like he was just a few you know, pounds of grain. This is hundreds and hundreds of pounds, thousands of pounds of stuff. So you can imagine how grateful these two small businessmen were when they got the news. They probably decided right then and there to take their families out to Broder's that night to celebrate because now their debt is lower. But with this surprising action, the tension in the story begins to build. In fact, everyone listening knew that this man, this manager, would not be able to keep up this behavior very long before his boss found out. And the boss knew almost immediately. So what everyone wondered then is, what's this boss going to do? And I know we've already read the story, so you know, but just imagine the tension rising. And imagine what you might be thinking as Jesus tells this story. What's going to happen? Are you expecting him to flip out? 
to lawyer up, to call the cops. Well, the boss has a problem, though, one that uh, maybe on just a moment's observation you might see is a, is a significant one, and that is that this scoundrel, this, this uh, shrewd manager, has made this boss, this guy who owns all these resources, the most popular guy on the block. He's now a very generous man because his agent has reduced the debt. So he really doesn't have a choice but to go along with this, to accept these revised contracts or risk an uprising. But even then, in the way the stories told, we're surprised at his actions because it says he commended the dishonest manager because he acted so shrewdly. So he quickly realized that once he fired this guy and took away his company car, he likely would be welcomed into his client's home. Maybe they'd say, come, live in my lake home. I'm not there most of the year. Or he'd invite them over to dinner with the fine china. So it's shrewd and dead, indeed. He uses his master's money while he still has access to the company books to earn these other creditors' favor. So it's no wonder the crooked man expected those with the reduced debts to reciprocate in some way, to take care of him, to keep him um, somehow employed or at least uh, covered while he's out of a job. And his soon-to-be boss, former boss, is impressed. And that's what confuses so many people about this story. How is it that Jesus can tell a story that so shamelessly celebrates the graft of this highly unethical employee? Well, the answer to that is that it's similar to other answers that we've had in other stories that we've looked at in this series. The assumption that many make when they hear a parable or a story that Jesus tells is that Jesus is telling us a little moral fable that has an example that we're to follow. That leads many in this story and other stories to try to conceive of elaborate explanations for what looks like is dishonest or unethical or objectionable behavior, but really isn't. And there are a variety of explanations in this story that have been given to try to say that. But the plain meaning is Jesus is saying he's dishonest, he's unethical, so we have to accept that at face value. A few weeks ago when we talked about this unethical judge who was denying a woman, a widow, justice, the judge in the story, at least on one level, represents God, except that he's not a very good one. He's a crooked judge, and he only eventually gives the widow justice when she bothers him enough. And Jesus says in that story, he implies anyway, how much more then will God, the righteous one who cares about everyone, give justice to all when they pray to him persistently? In other stories, Jesus makes this even clear with one scoundrel or another when he describes a morally deficient person and then he says, but do what they've done, the good that they've done, but do it even more. Understand how much more God will treat you. So this means that even in stories like this one where the phrase isn't explicitly used, the pattern is clear. How much more are we to act or are we to follow the example of even someone who might be a scoundrel? He's not condoning his actions, but he's using this person to make a point. So this story is not telling us to approve a dishonest employee, but it's telling us something else. So what is the point? Well, Jesus makes it, I think, pretty clear in verse 9 when he says this, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, that's the wealth, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. One of the things Jesus did, and the New Testament writers pick this up, and it's a common theme, is that time is divided into two halves, two parts. There's our time here on earth, and there is the time yet to come. One of the consistent messages is that the world in which we live will someday be replaced 
by a different, far better world to come. And that means that many of the problems that we face here, the result of greed and dishonesty and even cruelty, are the result of human sin. Those things will end and the world will work the way that we know it ought to work one day. So Jesus is saying that this dishonest man had just enough foresight to use the money that he had to make friends to help him in the future. So too, we can use the wealth that we have in productive and fruitful ways to make eternal friends. So the way that Jesus sees it, the money we have isn't just for this life, it's for the higher purpose, and so we can use our wealth in significant ways. Now, other places in the Bible, we know that it's important for us to save for anticipated future needs. Emergency savings, maybe a replacement car or a house or future education, retirement. But we must understand that all of what we have will one day be gone. In other words, money won't last forever and we can't take it with us. So, in the meantime, we need to use what we have wisely in ways that reflect the values of the kingdom of God, not simply for our own self-interested or self-centered purposes. In particular, we need to use money that reflects a commitment to the world yet to come, not just this world. The world that works not the way that this world works, with dishonesty, greed, and cruelty, but with righteousness, justice, and love. We need to use our wealth in such a way that we can achieve those kingdom purposes. So Jesus says... If you use your money to see these sorts of positive things happen in this life, then the people who benefit from those things will welcome you one day when you arrive in heaven and they will thank you. So what a better way to use what you have now rather than simply another car or an extra vacation or a shopping spree that someday you're just going to take all that stuff to Ark Value Village when you're tired of them. What he's saying here is that the values here is that we need to invest not just for our needs now, but for eternity. And because of what we do, we will, we will be able to use it well for the good of all. In other words, money is a gift of God. One of the consistent messages of the Bible is that money isn't ours. It's been entrusted to us. We're to steward it or use it well, manage it well. So in addition to providing for our needs, the money that we have can provide for the needs of the poor. It can help protect the vulnerable, the oppressed, And importantly, tell the good news of Jesus, news that brings peace and meaning and purpose and guidance and strength and hope for eternity in a relationship with Jesus. So there is a higher purpose in which we can use our resources, a purpose that extends well beyond this life. And it's in this story that Jesus tells us we can even now use what we have for a greater good, good that extends well into the future, into the life that comes. And it's a smart way, he's telling us, to invest our money because we all know that no matter how much we pile up in this life, we cannot take it with us. So unless we invest it now in the things of eternity, it will simply go to someone else. It will simply be, in some senses, wasted. And then just to reinforce what he's already said, Jesus adds these comments after he's told the story. Verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? In other words, if you're trustworthy in small ways, God may well trust you with even greater responsibility, either more resources or more influence. In some ways, every opportunity that we have in this life is a little test of character. It's by how we do in each situation that we will show whether we can be entrusted with greater responsibility and the opportunity to do even greater good. The point is not whether we should use the money that we've been given. We should all use it, but it's to what purpose do we use that, those resources. And to that end, 
Jesus says the true measure of wealth is not in what we keep, but in what we give away. And then he concludes the section with words you may have heard before. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the challenge Jesus gives us is to use whatever we have for eternal purposes. And if we do, he tells us he may well entrust us with greater material and spiritual responsibility. But the warning here is that if we waste or we hoard what we have, we'll show that we failed the test. That money, rather than something to be used, is using us. That instead of God being at the center of our lives, it's our stuff. We will all worship something, he says, so make sure that you're worshiping God. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? How can we live it out? Well, as you can imagine, the point of this story puts me in a somewhat uncomfortable position. So I'm the pastor of City Church, and uh, we rely on your generosity to be able to do what we do. So that could mean that I'm a little bit self-serving or uh, could be, uh, have vested interests in what we're talking about. And that might be, and it is, but I'm not too embarrassed about it, to be honest. For one, I sincerely believe in the eternal good that City Church is doing. And the good we do isn't done to benefit me, it's done to benefit all of us, and we hope many more people who live in this community. So we hope that over time people will hear the good news that we've each been offered, that we'll be able to extend to them the message that in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we find life. Those are the ones that we want to welcome in. And one day we hope, maybe in resources that you give now that will many years later prove fruitful, that there will be people who will greet you in heaven and say thank you. Now, even beyond all of that, even beyond City Church, let me say that we are not the only place that you can and should invest your money. It can be used to provide food for the hungry, clothing for the poor, housing for the homeless and the immigrant. It can purchase legal resources to seek justice for the oppressed, medical care for the sick, comfort for troubled souls. And just as we need to think carefully about how we invest for retirement, our generosity also has to be focused as well. There's no virtue in giving it away just to give it away. We need to pick the right causes, the right organizations, the right individuals in which to invest. So we don't want to waste it or use it in frivolous ways. Um, About 2011, um, there was a wealthy 94-year-old Italian widow who died, and after her death, her lawyers revealed that she had left her entire estate, valued at over $13 million, to her cat. Now, please, cat lovers, no emails. Yes, I am a little ambivalent about cats, but there's no offense intended because I could have just as easily used the story of Gunther, a German shepherd in the country of all all places, Germany, who inherited $138 million when when his master died in, in 1999. So we need to invest it well. John Wesley was uh, one of the greatest uh, leaders of one of the greatest Christian movements in the last couple hundred years, and he traveled and preached sermons multiple times a day in Britain and the United States, sometimes preaching seven, eight, nine, ten times a day. And so to do that, he didn't preach a different sermon every time. He, He developed a few stump speeches, including one based on this parable, and he summarized it this way. He said, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. So he repeated something I've already mentioned, and that is that money is a gift from God. So use it well, use it for good, and we need to learn to use what God has given us um, by, he said, first of all, gaining all you can. Now, Wesley saw financial success not as an evil in and of itself, but he did warn against things like overwork. He said, don't work yourself to death. 
uh, don't do anything that uh, disobeys a direct commandment of God or don't harm others. He said, so, and don't become consumed with accumulating stuff. But he said, if you're using your creative energy and you're using, you're diligent and you work hard and it turns out to be profitable, so be it. And then he said, if you begin to accumulate things, save it. Don't just spend it all. Don't just accumulate it in large bank accounts so you can then spend on big things. He said, live simply. Don't throw your money away and waste it, but save what you can in order to be able to give all that you can. So it's here that Wesley pointed out something we've already noted, and that is that we do not really own what we have. Instead, all we have is a gift of God, and we need to use it well um, in what we've been given. Use it to provide for ourselves and those near to us, for family and friends and those in our church community, and importantly, seek to meet the needs of many more. Maybe people you don't know, people you don't even agree with. Wesley believed, based on this story that Jesus told, that we must use whatever we've been given for eternal purposes, not simply to spend it in the here and now. There are many things that money can't buy, but there are a few things that are of significance, eternal significance, that money can buy. So, Wesley said, invest what you have in eternal things, and in doing so, win friends for eternity. So how do we do this? Well, I know that for some of you, money's tight. My suggestion to you would be start with something, almost anything, even something relatively small. It's just to begin to develop the habit and discipline of giving. I know, young, I know a young college grad who just started her first professional job, but at this point anyway, it doesn't pay much. In fact, not enough for her to even be able to move out of home and get a place of her own. There's no way that she could give one of the suggestions that many point to of 10%. That's just not possible. So what she's decided is to start giving anyway. What she can give at this point is modest, but it's a start, and it's building the discipline of generosity that I believe will benefit and serve her well in the years to come. On the other end of the extreme is sometimes you can do something much more substantial. I know a couple who were able to retire early, right around 60 years old. Um, They had made some good financial decisions and ended up with more money than they anticipated that they would have. But rather than increase their standard of living and begin to spend all of this windfall, they decided to continue to live in the lifestyle that they had been living in, a relatively simple lifestyle. And for almost 30 years, they've been able to give away about 50% of their income each year. Just imagine what it will be like for them to be welcomed into heaven by the people they've invested in, many of whom they've never met. So most of us are somewhere between these two extremes. But we can begin to invest in ways that extend well beyond our lifetime. And then maybe we'll understand that it's not such, the question is not how much we're to give, but how much we can invest in friendships with those who benefit eternally for what we've been able to give. With what God has given us, we then can bless others. Let's pray. Father, yet again, we thank you this week for these stories of Jesus. And this is a particularly challenging one, challenging to understand, but even more challenging to live out. Father, help us to um, humble ourselves enough to listen to you in terms of what you would ask us with what we've been given. Father, we recognize that all we have comes from you, that we are to take care of our needs and the needs of those close to us, but we are also out of the excess to be uh, able and willing and joyfully give that we might invest in eternal things. So help us know what our part in all of this might be. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.